Welcome back. And our, our first uh, question is, this is, this is not a question, but to let you know that your blog, Babylon Popery, and that's not the stuff you smell. <laughs> Popery, P-O-P-E-R-Y, like papal things. Popery and your church, a call to come out, couldn't have arrived at a better time. Recently, I had done several messages on character perfection through an actual partaking, through actual partaking of Christ's righteousness at my church. The pastor said during the sermon that you can't be perfectly righteous through Christ. Uh, he wants to monitor my messages to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. In other words, the idea of this authoritarian external control of, dog, of, of doctrine police to police your thoughts to tell you what's orthodoxy and not. Time to come out of that system. I've been thinking about the concept of, being, uh, of, of us being tripartite beings, as you've explained, mind, body, and energy, spirit. Could this uh, idea help us better grasp how Christ saved us, specifically in that Christ inherited flawed biology hardware, but had flawless software, mind, psyche, uh, and that uh, his mind reshaped the physiology of his brain to align perfectly with the law of love through his experience, especially that of the cross. So I wouldn't argue that. I, I, I think that's a way of expressing it. I wouldn't uh, say that that has uh, encapsulated all elements of what's going on. I, I don't think it's necessarily um, fraudulent to suggest that, that way of thinking. Um, his, his physical body was at the time that he walked the 33 and a half years, however, was not the glorified body either. It was a body that was subject to death and it did die. And he could get hungry and he could get fatigued and he could get tired. So, so you're exactly right. So, so thus the brain, you know, he developed a perfect character. He had healthy brain circuits. He didn't have any brain circuits of bad habits that we might have to overcome. So all those things are true as well. Um, but uh, I believe that when he resurrected, he resurrected in a different physiology than, than he died in. And so I wouldn't say that his, his, his overcoming and developing a perfect character resulted in the perfect physiology. I think that was the, what came up out of the grave. But he did develop a perfect character. Was incarnate Jesus omniscient? And they give the examples of telling the, um, the disciple to go out and get a fish and and there's some coins in the fish's mouth, but then he later said, uh, that no one knows the hour of the day but the angels. So no, Jesus lived as a human being, and when he became incarnate, he surrendered various divine prerogatives that were his prior to coming. The difference between him and you and I, though, in addition to the character elements we talked about, is that Jesus always retained the ability as a power of choice that he could choose to access divine resources that he chose not to access. So he could have chosen to perform miracles with his own divine power. That's why he was tempted to turn a rock into bread. You and I, if you're tempted, hey, if you really believe in Jesus Christ, turn this rock into bread. That's not even a temptation for you. It's silly. It's like you're going to giggle at that. Jesus actually could have done it because he had, uh, but he was living as a human being and, and not using divine power. So all the miracles you see Jesus doing are the same way Elijah floated an axe head. How did Elijah float an axe head? He didn't do it with power from Elijah. He did it with power from God through faith. And so any miracle that you see people doing and floating the axe head would be analogous to walking on water, okay? Those are the same types of miracles happening. 
Okay, and Jesus didn't do it through his own divine abilities, even though he could have. He did it through faith in his Father, as all of the people who have ever done miracles did. The healings that Paul and the apostles did, they didn't do it through their divine abilities. They did it through faith in the Father. Okay, and that's how Jesus is our divine substitute in his humanity did these things. So when Jesus uh, went back to heaven, I believe that Jesus in heaven after his ascension now knows the day and the hour too but he was speaking as a human being on earth. He did not know as a human being the day and the hour of the return. That was not part of the, the information he needed to fulfill the mission while he was here. But I think once he's returned to the command center of the universe, he has that knowledge. But he also um, has retained a certain limitation for all eternity as far as I understand it. And I wrote about this in one of our blogs, and that's the infinite sacrifice of Christ. Prior to his incarnation, Christ was an omnipresent being. He could be in all places at all times. But when he incarnated himself, he became a human for all eternity future. It wasn't for God so loved the world, he loaned Jesus to us for 33 and a half years. He gave him to us and he became human, merging his his divine self with our human nature and self for all eternity future. And that's why he went to heaven to have the spirit come because the spirit is now his representative on earth and through the Holy Spirit, he's at all places at all times. So, so it's a, a sacrifice on that level, and I'm sure more that we don't even know about, but it, it's mind-boggling to think what he sacrificed to save us. It's a, you said something in the past that really struck home with me. Like this, if somebody's holding your head in the water to drown you, and you have no power over that person, you'll be drowned. But let's say you're in possession of a knife and you could knife that person and get them off of you so you don't drown. Well, The urge to do that. Yeah, well, and so you, you have the potential of using that, which is even worse than what we have to go through because we don't have the ability to prevent death for us. But Jesus had these abilities and chose not to use them. So his temptation was even greater. That's exactly right. It was even greater. And you see this, at, you see this in Gethsemane, if it's possible that this cup passed from him. He's agonizing with the temptation. But at the cross... Read the, four, read the four gospel accounts. You will see repeatedly from different sources, Satan is motivating people to say, come down off the cross. If you, if you save yourself off the cross, we'll believe in you. Uh, perform a miracle, we'll believe in you. In other words, the temptation is constantly use that knife, use that power that's in your hand to prove it to us. And this was the temptation. It was very powerful. Yeah, good, good. Thank you for that. During this Thanksgiving time, I'm so very thankful for you in this ministry. My question is, in a Bible study, how can I share about Satan alleging that God cannot be trusted, that he alleges God is out to punish, and that every sin must meet its punishment? I want to use the Bible, not on the white. Have you have a very blessed Thanksgiving. So I, I build this case, and I've done this many times, starting with the, and you can start at several different places, but Satan is the father of lies. And there was war in heaven. And the war in heaven was not a physical battle. The war, the, the actual, in Revelation 12, uh, the, the Greek is polemo. From when we get polemic, it's a war of words. And Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So you set up this idea that the battle is never between the almighty creator and a created being. That's a, that's a silly scenario. And that, that's how many people thought that somehow Satan had some physical power and could really fight on some level almost equal to the, it was never the case. You have to disabuse people of that idea. And then, you, and then you show that this battle was a battle for hearts and minds, to win loyalty, to win love, to win affection, who you're going to trust. 
And then you can go to many stories in scripture, but I like the Thessalonians one, where Paul describes that the man of sin is, uh, is, is sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, how does he set himself up in God's temple in AD 65 when Paul's writing this? He didn't go up to heaven and knock Jesus off his throne. Uh, he doesn't go into Jerusalem. Uh, that temple is about to be destroyed. It's, it's the heart and minds of people, the spirit temple he sets himself up. And how does he do that? By getting us to believe these falsehoods about God. And so this battle is always for hearts and minds. And so, and, and the core issue is, who do you trust? Who is God? And Jesus and all the things Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And, uh, and I, I find it's actually quite direct to make a, dis, uh, uh, and who, who is Satan warring against? He's actually not warring against you and me. And most Christians, even though they haven't thought through the implications, understand the wars between Christ and Satan. They understand that. Well, then, then you go into the methods and means and, and, and you show he's the father of lies. It's very easy to get them to show that Satan has been lying about God from the beginning. I read an article once about a... Uh, no, I'm not even going to read that question. So whoever submitted that question, you can stop submitting it. Why did, God's, why did God turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt? It's so random. Or do you think it might have been more that her body was petrified and became a mineral substance like those who've died in volcanic eruptions? We're not told. Um, we're actually told she turned back and was turned to a pillar of salt. It actually doesn't say God turned her to a pillar of salt. It doesn't say she was punished. By it just, she turned back and said, don't look back. It turned to a pillar of salt. When we get to heaven... I, I, there's multiple speculations on what this could be. Was this God acting in way to put somebody to sleep or resurrect later? Was this, she looked back at some type of fire that caused a desiccation. All the water was just vaporized right out of her. If you take all the water out of your body, what's left is salt, basically. Okay, and so it, it's unclear. It doesn't tell us. We just know what happened, but we don't know why, and we don't know God's role in it at this point. And so you have to put that under the thing. We don't have enough information to actually draw an accurate conclusion about this one. And so we'll, we'll ask that question when we get there. What actually happened there? We have enough information on multiple other scenarios, though, that we can draw conclusions about God's role in these things, and I've described those in various blogs about the flood and other things. You answered a question about whether how a narcissist could be cured. What about histrionic personality disorder? Same thing. It, whether you have a diagnosed personality disorder or not, no healing takes place without God's grace working in your heart. I'm talking about heart healing, character healing, renewal. An honest person, a dishonest person doesn't become honest without the Holy Spirit working in their heart. Whether you have a diagnosed disorder or not, all transformation of hearts and minds are processes of the plan of salvation being worked out in people's hearts and minds. Now, without that, can people, through societal pressure and societal experiences and life consequences, learn uh, adaptive behavior and more social conformity where they get along better in society and don't commit crimes that are punishable? Yes, they can do that. For self-preservation and self-advancement reasons, people become very socially uh, skilled and adept, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have um, a new heart and right spirit. So if you're really wanting to change a heart and mind, it's always through grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. In a recent q and I understood that you two say that demons do not physically overtake a person's body. Yes. What I, yes. Intracellular occupation. Not, I, I do not believe demons live inside your physical body. Even the people who are demon-possessed overtake a person's body, but rather their minds. That's correct. John 13, 27 says, Satan entered Judas 
after eating the bread, and Jesus told him, hurry, uh, what you're going to do, do quickly. Um, was this entry of the mind and who, yes, if you, yes, exactly what it was. Uh, Judas was, was oscillating back and forth between truly becoming loyal to Christ or uh, solidifying with selfishness and pride, arrogance, greed, and he chose these elements. And when he chose these elements at a particular point, he gave himself into Satan's hands and Satan took control of his mind and his drives and he chose to identify with that. But it was, it was actually Judas's choice to identify with those destructive desires, giving, uh, aligning himself with Satan, thus giving Satan more uh, power to influence his decision-making. But at no time did Satan live in the same cellular structure that Judas was living in. This was... This was mind control, if you will. I resonate with you about the requirements for church's baptism. In the Old Testament had a laver in the tabernacle or temple, no recorded baptism. Pause. So I'm going to, uh, that, that was symb symbolism. So whoever's writing this, when you study the Old Testament, you need to understand that's symbolism. Who, what do the symbols represent? The, the laver did represent baptism. And who, who uses the labor? The laver. Who uses it? It was the priests. And the priests in the Old Testament sanctuary service in their white robes represented the Christians, the converted. And the rest of Israel, not in white robes, represent the unconverted world. So only the priests would wash in the laver, showing that they're being cleansed by the water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit cleansing them for useful labor. So, so the metaphor of the baptism is built in if you understand what the symbols mean. Uh, and that's why the unconverted, the rest of Israel, did not wash in the laver because they're in the theater not acting the role of the converted. They're acting the role of the unconverted. And remember, the Old Testament sanctuary is all theater. It's all theater. There's nothing literal in it. And in the Old Testament sanctuary, they had a really cool stage, neat props, cool costumes, and a script that we call scripture. Scripture. Okay, it's a script. <laughs> Teaching a lesson. It's all object lesson. It's nothing literal in any of the stuff that they did in that system. Any more than any, uh, if you're on a Sabbath morning, you have a children's story and they have a little drama acted out. Yeah. Nothing literal up there saves. It's all drama to teach something that saves. That's what was happening here. So do you think one should do something like some Bible studies before the church agrees to baptize them? If yes, what would these requirements be? Can we do away with the ritual? To me, our faith and salvation are from the heart and not uh, a show to others. So the, the ceremonies or rituals have a place in God's cause for our development and growth and witness for him. They themselves do not do anything. Dunking someone in water does not have magical benefit, Okay. And the true baptism that everyone who is saved must experience is the baptism of the heart and mind into the Holy Spirit, where the heart and mind is cleansed from the old fear-based, self-centered ways, and you are reborn with new cleansed desires. And that's what the Bible describes. Then after a person has given their heart, they've been one to faith, they've given their heart to Jesus, they will often go through, and, and the Bible instructs to go through the water baptism. Why? Because once we believe something in our heart and mind, how do we solidify it into our being? We act on it. We make decisions to apply it. 
And so I want to make a public testimony and, and I want to demonstrate that the old me is dead and I've risen to a newness of life in Christ. And so the ceremony becomes a way that we solidify into our own experience what we've already experienced in Christ. Who, what would I have them do? I wouldn't have them do any Bible studies beforehand. I would have them do Bible studies afterhand, which is what you see. I mean, there could be a very brief Bible study to the point of conversion. Yes, you always study and show the truth that wins them to Christ. But once they're one to Christ, like if you remember the eunuch um, that, that was uh, studying with Philip, they're studying the Bible together. Until the eunuch comes to the point and says, Wow, I believe. I give my heart to Jesus. Well, there's water. What, 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 why delay? And of course, Philip said, well, because there's 28 other fundamentals you have to study first. <laughs> no, Philip didn't say that. They got out and baptized him. So the Bible study happens to the point that they are actually converted in heart and they surrender their heart to Christ. And then you carry out the ceremony. But if they're unconverted, you don't carry out the ceremony. And then once the ceremony, then you continue to do, look at the New Testament church and Acts. They continue to meet, they continue to fellowship, they continue to instruct. There were questions, there were problems. There were problems about food they were gonna eat, problems of who they socialized with, who they marry, all kinds of problems that they were addressed after conversion, not before. Yes, after baptism. So it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. I mean, because that was the question I was going to ask you later, and maybe that's a different discussion, but how, how is one born, how, how is one led to conversion? You know, it's not the guilt and the shame, but it's... The... So this is the point. Once a person is led to conversion, then they're baptized. What leads them to the conversion? Truth. Truth and love leads to conversion. And the truth and love comes through three avenues that we teach in here. One is scripture. People can discover through scripture. One is life experiences the experiences of, of other Christian folks ministering God's love and their witness and, and their, how they're treated, the grace you experience at the hands of others, and, and you hear that that grace is given because th that person has received grace from God themselves, and through science and nature. Uh, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature, seen in what he has known. So the Holy Spirit works on different hearts and minds with the truth that is constantly in our environment for the sensitive hearts and minds to be led to the point that they are one to trust in God, and when they are, then... They are baptized, and then after baptized, they continue to study so they can grow and mature. God's design law example of demons self-indict. Yes? Mark 5, 1 to 20. Loud voice shout, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you. No, the, the demons exactly don't self-indict. When you read here, these demons are using forms of self the, the forms of deception to try to deceive and, and undermine Christ's ministry. So notice what they say. Um, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God not to torture me. So here they're admitting their demons. They're admitting their enemies, but they're inducing the idea, and you're here to punish me because you're a punishing God. See, there it is right there. It's demonic. It's a lie. And so they're, and they're trying to reinforce this idea that God is the punisher. They're also trying to um, get the populace to recognize Jesus as a worldly deliverer who was power and might as all the other false messiahs that have been coming along for hundreds of years in the Jewish nation so that they will rally behind him and, and start a, a human insurrection behind Jesus so the Romans will come down on him. So the demons here are not actually giving testimony to Jesus. They're using the ability through people that they can manipulate to try and incite a rebellion uh, or undermine confidence in Jesus. In fact, it's just the opposite. Do you have any importance to the culture of the kingdom? By this, I mean when I began to understand more about God's culture, 
I wanted to do things that were the zit fit. I wonder if they mean the, the zeitzist. Um, I wanted to celebrate the days that he appointed and do the things that were kingdom more than in a, opposed to the culture that we live in with pagan influences and holidays. So this is, a, yeah. So if you want to follow God and do what he wants in your life today, then you begin your own personal journey of study and uh, study God's word, uh, prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to lead. Uh, what are the things that he'd have you do in your life at this time? And understanding ultimately design law and then begin, begin differentiating metaphor, object lesson, theater, symbol from reality. I'm convinced that at this time in human history, God is wanting his people to become more so than any time in human history, people of reality, who understand reality, not people of religion, of symbolism. I give lots of examples where sincere people don't connect metaphor that are designed to enlighten us to the reality to which it points. And so people will say, well, my pastor told me I just need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If I would just accept the blood of Jesus and be cleansed, that I wouldn't feel all this guilt and shame that I'm struggling with. Uh, how many have heard something like this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and sincere, but, but by the blood of Jesus? Well, can you find some somewhere? Do you think there's maybe a relic at, at Vatican? They got a little vial of it somewhere. They they they've saved all these years. You can like you maybe do it. Maybe we can maybe we can clone some of it today. Get with our DNA manipulation and build and get some vials of blood and, and and pour it over people. I mean, this is metaphor. Jesus said, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me." But people don't actually think. They just I just claim the blood. I just I'm I'm washed in the blood. In fact, there's power in the blood, and we sing about that. But the power's not in the blood. The power's in the one who shed his blood. And the blood's just a metaphor. And God is wanting us to move past these metaphors to the reality for which they stand. And the sad penal legal thing has actually lied to you about the blood. You read most penal legal stuff and listen to most penal legal theologians, they will tell you the blood is a, is a metaphor for the death of Jesus. It's the, it's the blood price, the blood payment, the death that paid your price. The Bible does not teach this. Leviticus chapter 17 tells you, it does not say the death is in the blood. It says, life. the life is in the blood. And this is not, a, the, the blood of Jesus is not the death penalty that pays your price. It is the representative of the sinless life of Jesus that becomes yours by faith. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. We get a new life. We don't get a death penalty paid. And they've corrupted, they've cheated people out of this with these, by continuing the, the blood metaphor and then transferring it over. So what I think, if you want this, Grow, study, go past metaphor, go past object lesson, go past the symbol, symbols, understand reality. That requires understanding what God's design laws are, what sin actually is, what's necessary to fix it. We are not... I mean, sometimes these things are typed so fast they're not actually sentences and I'm having trouble figuring out what, what's written here because there's like verbs and things missing. Um, okay, I think, okay, yeah. Um, could the thief on the cross be characterized as experiencing a baptism of death as contemplating his future and accepting Christ's redemption? I don't even know what that means. A baptism of death? 
I mean, the thief on the cross who was saved surrendered his heart and mind to Jesus Christ and accepted his heart, mind, soul to be cleansed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Even though he didn't know who the Holy Spirit was in trusting Jesus, he opened his heart to Jesus and the Spirit always does the Jesus' will in cleansing the heart. So he was baptized in heart, mind, and spirit and that's why he's gonna be in heaven. He was reborn, if you will. His heart was circumcised. He was cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So that happened, even though he didn't go through the ritual. Now, if you're meaning, did he die to the old way of living? Yes, that's when he died, he was converted. That's the death of the old way. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've done through Jesus Christ. And you are the God of creation, the God of reality. And we ask that you will send your spirit to make real in our hearts and minds the victory that you won on our behalf. We pray in your holy name, amen.